This is the Green Street News, your weekly environmental health show and podcast. Patty and Doug Wood and our network of experts, welcome back. On the subject board today, be careful about eating chocolate. Pete Myers' op-ed on using plastic to build roads and why that big announcement about nuclear fusion may not be as great as it sounds. And we'll hear from a reporter in Minnesota about 3M's sad history of polluting the water and how it has impacted the health of the residents there. That's all coming up on this edition of Green Street News. Stay with us. All right, Patty Wood, so what happened in the world of environmental health this week? A lot of things, I am sure, but there are a few things that I think our listeners will be interested in. Um, One of them was an op-ed that was written by Pete Myers. He's actually the editor of Environmental Health News. Mm, Where Um, we get a lot of our stories from. Yeah, and he's talking here about about plastic being added to road surfacing materials. Okay. He's actually talking about an article that was written in a newspaper in Charlottesville, Virginia, which published a story that really made him upset. Um, The paper, along with other publications, republished a piece originally from the Pew Charitable Trust titled, Plastic Roads Are Paved with Good Intentions. And it outlines how state transportation officials across the U.S. are testing out discarded plastic in pavement. He says, I have studied the human and wildlife effects of chemicals that leach from plastics for more than 30 years. I actually provided invited testimony on December 15th before a U.S. Senate subcommittee on chemical safety about plastics and health. The hearing was called Examining the Impact of Plastic Use. Adding plastics to roads, even with the best of intentions, is guaranteed to create a massive source of nano and microplastics, which leach into every nook and cranny of the environment and all parts of human and wildlife bodies. We have a hard time managing big plastic waste items. Once they become micro or nano, they are impossible to recover. They will pollute for hundreds of years, if not a lot longer. And he goes on to say, while I'm all for science, the testing being done at the University of Missouri, as described in the article, is not necessary. We already know what will happen. Roads abrade because of friction from tires. It is unavoidable and is why they need to be repaved every few years. But building roads out of plastic is literally a road to hell. Plastic-laden roads will probably abrade faster. And all too often, today's seductive solutions become tomorrow's problems. When will we ever learn that simple truth? The tires themselves are made from plastic, and it is one of the biggest sources of microplastics worldwide. Add that to the abraded road surfaces, which are, will also be giving off microplastics, and you wind up with a double whammy here. I mean, it sounds like a good idea. Let's yeah, take plastic and recycle it and use it somehow. They but are looking for ways to use all this single-use plastic waste. I mean, everybody is looking for ways to get rid of it. I say we have to stop, stop, stop making, making it. Stop making it in the first place. Yeah, yeah, stop making it in the first place. But why is it so difficult that going to the source and fixing the problem at the source is something that people don't think about? It's all about Band-Aids. It's all about trying to fix it and letting it keep going on and, you know, on and on and on and on, because, of course, that's driving our economy. That's right. But that's where we are. I'm a source person. (laughs) Okay. Good. Okay. What else you got? Okay. So I have another uh, article, and it's actually from Consumer Reports. 
Um, and the title of it is interesting, and you should be you should be aware now. I, I don't I'm think we want to hear this. Do we want to hear yeah, this? Yeah, you should be aware. Go what read, I'm going to say the title. is a little I can bit see upsetting. It. Lead and cadmium could be in your dark chocolate. Yeah, this is a big problem. Mm -hmm. This was written by Kevin Loria. For many of us, chocolate is more than just a tasty treat. It's a mood lifter, an energy booster, a reward after a tough day, a favorite holiday gift. <laughs> People also choose dark chocolate in particular for its potential health benefits, thanks to studies that suggest its rich supply of antioxidants may improve heart health and other conditions, and for its relatively low levels of sugar. In fact, more than half of people in a recent survey described dark chocolate as a better-for-you candy. But there's a dark side to this healthier chocolate. I figured, okay. Research has found that some dark chocolate bars contain cadmium and lead, two heavy metals linked to a host of health problems in both children and adults. The chocolate industry has been grappling for years with ways to lower these levels. To see how much of a risk these favorite treats pose, Consumer Reports scientists recently measured the amount of heavy metals in 28 dark chocolate bars. They detected cadmium and lead in all of them. So these were like the commercial bars, right? This is oh, not yeah, like no, health, healthy. No, no, no. This uh -oh. is everything. Uh-oh. Uh, Consumer Reports tested a mix of brands, including smaller ones such as Alter Eco, which is an organic chocolate mm. manufacturer, and Mast, and more familiar ones like Dove and Ghirardelli. For 23 of the bars, eating just an ounce a day would put an adult over a level that public health authorities say may be harmful for at least one of those heavy metals. Five of the bars were above those levels for both cadmium and lead, and that's risky stuff. Consistent long-term exposure to even small amounts of heavy metals can lead to a variety of health problems. The danger is greatest for pregnant people and young children because the metals can cause developmental problems, affect brain development, and lead to lower IQ. Frequent exposure to lead in adults can lead to nervous system problems, hypertension, immune system suppression, kidney damage, and reproductive issues. This is really bad news. Well, you do like your chocolate. I think I'm like a lot of people, you yeah. know, and they like chocolate. I mean, I've been going overboard trying to find chocolate the, bars that have a higher cocoa content right. or a higher cacao content. Right. Just because they're really low in sugar and because that cocoa is it, supposedly, you know, quite healthy as I, you know, as I as I read. Yeah. People are buying it because of that. So this is also part of this article. While most people don't eat chocolate every day, 15% of the American public eat chocolate every day. And even if you aren't a frequent consumer of chocolate, lead and cadmium can still be a concern. It's also found in many other foods, such as sweet potatoes, spinach, and carrots, and small amounts from multiple sources can add up to dangerous levels. That's why it's important to limit exposure wherever you can. So... How is this happening? How is the lead and the cadmium getting gonna, into ask, the chocolate? Is this a manufacturing problem or is mm. it happening naturally? Well, it's, it's two things. There are two reasons why. But let's just talk very quickly about chocolate because chocolate is made from the cacao bean, which has two main components, cocoa solids and cocoa butter. Together, these are called cacao or cocoa. Okay. Dark chocolate's reputation as a relatively healthy treat stems mostly from the cocoa solids. These are packed with flavanols, which are antioxidants linked to improved blood vessel function, reduced inflammation, and lower cholesterol. Dark chocolate is also lower in sugar and higher in fiber than milk chocolate, and it has magnesium and potassium. Unfortunately, cocoa solids are where the heavy metals are, especially cadmium. 
that makes it tricky to balance dark chocolate's risks and benefits. And some of the same concerns extend to products made with cocoa powder, which is essentially pure cocoa solid, such as hot cocoa and brownie and cake mixes. Should I stop here? Uh, yeah, stop that's there. Really, really. Yeah, this depressing. is this is very upsetting. <laughs> I mean, for people that drink cocoa like I do, uh, very often, I gave up coffee basically, mm -hmm. and uh, and now you're telling me that I have to give up the cocoa. I'm going to be left with a cup of hot water pretty soon. <laughs> Not bad. Although you could put some lemon in it. Although I hear from my son-in-law that lemon is really bad for your teeth. Oh, okay, let me okay. just let me just explain though to our audience where this comes from. So. Researchers find that the cocoa plants take up cadmium from the soil, with the metal accumulating in the, co in the cocoa beans as the tree grows. And that's similar to how heavy metals contaminate other foods as well. Hmm. So it's actually taken up yeah. from the soil. Okay. But lead gets into cocoa after the beans are harvested. The researchers found that the metal was typically on the outer shell of the cocoa bean, not in the bean itself. The lead levels were, were low soon after the beans were picked and removed from pods, but they increased as the beans dried in the sun for days. And during that time, lead-filled dust and dirt accumulated on the beans. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So this is a problem. So, so, so what should we do? Are there safer types of chocolate? Are there things that you can still eat? or drink? Well, I suggest that everybody just go look at this article on Consumer Reports, because it does have, you know, a, a little section in the article that says better ways to eat dark chocolate. Don't assume organic dark chocolates are safer because they are not. And don't mm. give kids dark chocolate. Think about your total chocolate consumption. I'm going to have to unwrap a couple of presents um, that I have wrapped <laughs> for Christmas and uh -oh. not give yeah. them. You know what, I'll, I'll put a link to this article up on our website, uh, greenstreetnews.org, yeah. so people are interested. It's very, very interesting, All right. though. All right, what else do you have? Yeah, and this is the last one, which, you know, I find really interesting. I was kind of waiting to hear what the other side of the story was on this, but you know that just recently the Department of Energy announced that they had, you know, made huge progress with nuclear fusion. Oh, yeah, with lasers. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so, so that's, you know, that's what this is about. What'd you find out? Um, the U.S. Department of Energy has announced what scientists consider a major breakthrough in nuclear fusion research. In the Department of Energy's press release, they celebrate, quote, a major scientific breakthrough decades in the making that will pave the way for advancements in national defense and the future of clean power. However exciting these laboratory experiments might be to nuclear scientists, nuclear fusion remains a long way from becoming a part of the world's clean energy portfolio. For many decades, nuclear fusion has been a holy grail energy concept promising affordable and clean power that doesn't produce the same intensely radioactive and long-lived nuclear waste that nuclear fission generates. Nuclear fusion experiments have also been of great interest to weapons developers and the military. Driven by defense and energy goals, the U.S. has spent over 70 years and tens of billions of dollars funding research and development into nuclear fusion. Despite this immense research effort, the concept has never reached beyond the theoretical. Perhaps this is why the news is being heralded as a tremendous achievement in nuclear fusion, despite the reality that they remain very far from making fusion a viable endeavor. Department of Energy hopes it will make big news because it is the first breakthrough in the basic science after 70 years. 
Reality is the fact that it took up to 250 times as much electricity to power the lasers that the energy delivered to the target. Currently, the Department of Energy's experimental reactor can do this only once per day. A fusion reactor would need to do it 864,000 times per day. That's 10 times per second day in and day out. And while it is true that engineering can lead to great advances in technology over that used in basic scientific experiments, it remains unclear whether an operable fusion reactor would truly be possible. So it would take many more massive engineering breakthroughs to reach the capability where an actual fusion power plant might be designed. After 70 years and tens of billions of dollars spent, this is a minuscule step toward viable fusion technology. Nuclear fusion remains a futuristic fantasy that has no role in the urgent, immediate need for climate solutions that are affordable, just, scalable, and most importantly, readily available. So, should we keep investing in nuclear fusion research? Well, you know, this occurred to me is that I, I hope this isn't taken by people to mean, oh, great, so we don't have to worry about saving energy anymore because we're going to have all the energy we want. Well, that actually was what a lot of people took from this Well, that's pretty much what they said. We're, yeah, this uh, we have is a it. source of unlimited energy now. That's it. How great is this? And we're, it's not going to produce the radioactive waste that, you know, that, that, that these nuclear power plants over the years. However, However, if solving climate change is the most urgent priority of U.S. energy policy, nuclear fusion research is a waste of time and resources. In addition to being nowhere near feasibility, nuclear fusion is not the clean, just energy technology it has been made out to be. The notion that nuclear fusion would not produce any waste is also simply misleading. It is true that nuclear fusion does not require uranium and would not produce the same kind of radioactive waste as nuclear fission. However, that does not mean that nuclear fusion's byproducts would be benign. The neutron emissions from nuclear fusion reactions would irradiate everything in and around the reactor, turning it all radioactive. If the scientific and engineering barriers to pure fusion weapons are overcome, a new class of weapons could emerge that would radically increase the nuclear threat. Pure fusion weapons would not require plutonium or highly enriched uranium, the acquisition of which is one of the main obstacles to nuclear proliferation. These weapons could also be made in various sizes, from very small to very large, and would not produce the highly radioactive fallout of current nuclear weapons. At the same time, the release of large numbers of neutrons would make them very effective at killing people while minimizing blast effects. I think this falls into the category of, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. So well, what's really it interesting is a... that they're pushing, 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 you know, for funding to continue all this research, you know, and using this idea that it is going to provide clean energy, when in fact, what's really involved here is the military yeah. looking at the possibility of a whole new class of weapons. That's what we need. All right. Thanks, Patty. You're welcome. There are tens of thousands of manufacturing companies in the United States today, making everything from nuts and bolts to jet airplanes. And they range from tiny family-owned companies to giant multinational behemoths. One of the biggest is the 3M company, known throughout the world for its scotch tape and 55,000 other products that span a wide range of industries and applications. 3M was founded more than 100 years ago as a small-scale mining venture in northern Minnesota. It's a company built on innovation, developing new products that consumers and other industries can use. Its first product was sandpaper, 
and over the years, it has developed thousands of other products that combine organic compounds with chemicals. And that's where the trouble started. Because in the manufacturing process, there is always going to be waste. If you're making sandpaper, you'll have some sand that just doesn't stick to the paper. The sand that doesn't adhere can be used again. But what if the waste has chemicals in it? Chemicals that can't really be recycled, that have been contaminated with other chemicals or raw materials in a way that makes them unusable. Then what? Back in the 50s and 60s, 70s, 3M would bury the industrial waste in these unlined landfills. And there were like four sites in the county where they buried this waste for years. And, you know, they would have like, you know, online trenches. And sometimes they would store it in these barrels. And at one point they burned the barrels. And <laughs> they were always sort of vexed by how to get rid of this waste. That's Dina Winter, a reporter from St. Paul, Minnesota. She's written pieces for the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times, and recently wrote a series of in-depth investigative articles for the Minnesota Reformer about the 3M company and its history of dumping toxic chemicals in shallow landfills around the Twin Cities or straight into the river. Dina wanted to tell the story of the people whose lives have been forever changed as a result of medical problems linked to the chemicals dumped by 3M. She began with the kids. I don't feel like there was a lot of coverage of actual people and the cluster of kids that got cancer at Tartan High School back in the early 2000s. Well, now that that's some time ago, right? So I thought I would go back and try to get in touch with as many of those kids as possible. And then also that were listed as witnesses for the state lawsuit. We don't know for sure, but we, we certainly did seem to have a lot of young kids get cancer uh, out that way. And Amara, who's the lead of the story, is dying right now. Amara Strand is 20 years old now. When she was 15, she learned she had a nearly 15-pound tumor embedded in her liver, a rare type of cancer that strikes one in five million Americans between the ages of 15 and 39. She has since had more than 20 surgeries to battle the tumors that keep growing in her body. She says she's not sure if 3M is responsible, but a 2017 study found that a child's risk of dying from cancer was 171% higher in the area where Amara lived than in the surrounding area. According to the Minnesota Department of Health, people living in that area had elevated levels of perfluorocarbons in their blood compared to the rest of the country. And in 2005, the state's attorney general sued 3M, claiming that a 100-square-mile underground plume east of St. Paul, where Amara lived, was contaminated with harmful compounds. I met with her, you know, once. Uh, she had to reschedule a couple times because she's really sick. And but finally, when she was feeling okay, we... We met at a Green Mill pizza place out in Woodbury, and um, she told me her story. And as she recounts in the story that, you know, she's got a really rare form of cancer that's, you know, strikes young people some, you know, very, very rarely. But when she first got diagnosed, she had a tumor the size of, was it like a 15-pound tumor inside of her, uh, almost the size of a, uh, she called it a small volleyball. <laughs> but... Um, they were able to get that one, but she's been battling tumors ever since, you know, they just keep coming. And uh, now she's at the point where 
they can't really do anything anymore. The one that she has now is kind of embedded. And so she's got some broken ribs and she just lost the use of her, her right hand, I think it was. And they were kind of out of options. So right now she's, uh, she's uh, looking at the end. In the 1950s, 3M began using per- and polyfluoroalkyl substances, known as PFAS, to make products that resisted heat, oil, grease, stains, and water. The products were immensely popular with consumers and became big profit centers for 3M. Scotchgard kept stains from ruining carpets. Teflon cookware made food slide right off the pan onto the plate. And wrapping paper for fast food kept the grease from leaking through. But there were two big problems. One was what to do with the waste. The other was the growing scientific evidence that these chemicals could cause serious health problems. Some of the waste would go right into the Mississippi River, but they, they just buried it for years. And as they said in their internal documents, well, this was just standard procedure back then. That's what everybody did. It didn't seem as though straight regulators were aware of for quite some time. It's uh, buried and then it's leaching into the groundwater. By the 1960s, the company was generating 4 million gallons of chemical waste every year, with most of it going into unlined pits and the rest being dumped into the Mississippi River. By that time, 3M knew that the chemicals were likely to pollute the groundwater and could cause some serious health effects. The thing that I wanted to do was look at all the evidence that our state had compiled for their lawsuit against 3M. By the 50s, they had done these animal studies that found that the chemicals, PFAS chemicals, were toxic. By the 60s, they knew that they, they didn't degrade in the environment. By the 70s, they knew they were they were in most Americans' blood, you know. Yeah. The first thing I clicked on was I clicked on just a random item, and it was a monkey study where they had to abandon the study because all the monkeys died. <laughs> PFAS can be found in the blood of nearly everyone on Earth. The chemicals have been linked to low fertility, birth defects, suppression of the immune system, thyroid disease, and cancer. And of course, kids are more susceptible to all kinds of environmental toxins than adults. And exposures at certain periods of development can be more dangerous than others. So was Amaristrand's cancer just a coincidence or was it related to the chemicals from 3M? Certain types of cancers and certain age groups were higher out in that area. You know, there wasn't a ton of awareness that that could even be what caused their cancer. You know, how do you prove that that's what caused their cancer? But yet there are four landfills in that county and we know that the levels of PFCs in their blood was way higher until 3M did help pay for these filtration systems for Oakdale. And then they did some other work to help filter the water. And then some of these incidences of cancer went down. That's right. Although the company continued to claim their chemicals were not responsible for the high cancer rates for the people living near the underground plume of contamination, in 2005 the company helped pay for a water filtration system for the city of Oakdale, and the city's cancer rate dropped.
If you're a fan of the movie Aaron Brockovich, you remember the scene when Julia Roberts meets a shady character when she stops by a local night spot to get some coffee. The man tells her his job was to shred documents for the power company, but he wasn't a very good employee. The documents he saved turned out to be the smoking gun that won the case. As a reporter, Dina Winter didn't have to wait for a stroke of luck to find the documents incriminating 3M. Back in 2010, Minnesota's Attorney General had sued 3M, alleging that the company's production of PFAS had damaged drinking water and natural resources in the Twin Cities metropolitan area. So the Attorney General, former Attorney General Lori Swanson, sued sued 3M, you know, alleging that they basically contaminated the state, and um, you know she had experts prepared to testify that you know they they did find elevated cancer rates in uh, in that county. Um, our health department has been a little bit odd throughout this, in that. You know, right before, just days before the case was supposed to go to trial, the state health department puts out this report, you know, like an update on their studies of any possible cancer clusters out there. It basically was like, everything's fine. <laughs> and it was like right before the state was about to go to trial. I don't, I don't know that, I don't know that it is the reason that it got settled. I mean, Lori Swanson didn't say that to me, but, you know, the morning it was supposed to go to trial, uh, they settled it. But there was a silver lining, at least for Dina Winter. One good thing that Lori did uh, release all these documents to the public. There's a website that anybody can look at, hundreds and hundreds of exhibits that would have been, could have been used at trial. And I think that was sort of like her way of saying this needs to be out there. This story doesn't have an Aaron Brockovich ending. There's been no class action lawsuit, no giant payday, no real reckoning. The people of the Twin Cities in Minnesota still wonder if their health problems were caused by the dumping of toxic chemicals from 3M's factories. And of course, the dumping continues because there will always be waste. The other day, 3M announced it would stop producing products with PFAS sometime in 2025. It was the first major manufacturer to do so. It was good news, but comes a little late for the people of the Twin Cities. It just seems like there's got to be a way to get some justice for some of these young folks out in uh, Minnesota who, who got cancer and, and may have gotten it from, from the water, but we don't know for sure. But uh, somebody ought to find out and somebody ought to do something about it and they ought to get some form of justice. Investigative reporter Dina Winter, author of Something in the Water, a series of articles published in the Minnesota Reformer about the 3M company and the impact of PFAS chemicals on the people of Minnesota. You can find a link to Dina's articles along with a link to the website Dina spoke about with all of the documents on our own website, greenstreetnews.org. That's going to do it for this edition of Green Street News. If you missed any part of today's show, you can always hear it again, along with all our other shows, at greenstreetnews.org or wherever you get your podcast. Patty and I will be back next week with another show. Thanks for listening. <laughs>